0: All right, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again. To begin a new section you might see, or a a new part of the Gospel of John, where John begins to get into uh, the more mystical part of the life of Christ. And as we go on from here on, uh, we will get deeper and deeper into the mystical part of Christ's teachings. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today, and as we go forward, not only here in our study of the Gospel of John, but in how our Lenten observances will tie into this, so that they will all dovetail into Holy Week and the great season of Easter. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. I feel a little strange up here because I don't have a podium, you know, or something. (laughs) But that's the way it goes. Anyways, uh, today we're going to get into what I call the transition uh, from the Book of Signs or the Book of Changes, that I would prefer to call it, and go into then the Book of Glory, which actually starts in Chapter 13. But Chapter 12 is somewhat of a transitional uh, chapter, which is important in in many ways as well. But what I'd kind of like to do, uh, because as I just said in our little prayer here, we are beginning to get into a new phase of the teachings of uh, the Gospel of John. And so I want to review a little bit about where we've come from and talk about how we can then set our mind into uh, approaching it in a little different way from here on. The Gospel of John, as we've said all along, is so different from the other Three Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, because they sort of follow each other in a more biographical and chronological uh, approach. Uh, The Gospel of John does not do that. It starts out right in the beginning with the prologue that says, Jesus is God. Not only the Word of God, but God himself coming to us in human form. And why? It is because of the relationship between God and mankind that was broken by sinful mankind, beginning with our first parents and down through the ages. And because of the laws of divinity, God cannot exist with sinful mankind and therefore, some form of reparation had to be made, some form of sacrifice had to be made in order to allow mankind to again approach, approach God in the same way that Adam and Eve did. If you think about it, and of course, I'm talking about Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve as it was portrayed in Genesis, which is not history. It is an allegory. It is a story of what could have happened or what might have happened or what was condensed into an appearance because no one was around, you know. No dictation, uh, no video cameras or smartphones or whatever around in those days. And therefore, the whole story of Adam and Eve wasn't developed until around the 5th century B.C. long after many of the other books of the Bible were already written. It was written to give a beginning to the collection of those various writings of the Old Testament uh, before it was put together in around the 5th century and revised again in the 2nd century B.C. Adam and Eve was portrayed as all mankind being accessible to God and God being accessible to them at their will because they were created perfect and they were given boundaries. And that's what the tree, you know, of good and evil was all about. It was not a trap. It was not something uh, that was put there just to entice them. It was a boundary. All mankind needs a boundary in order to develop some idea of relationships. And once they transversed that boundary or sinned by eating the fruit of the tree, which they were forbidden to do, they created a barrier between themselves and God. And therefore, they did not have access to God. That was signified by the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. In other words, they were put out because mankind, sinful mankind, uh, is not acceptable to a perfect God. Often we hear throughout the Old Testament several Uh, reiterations and even in the New Testament about be perfect as your Holy Father is perfect. Okay, What it should really be saying is be perfect because your Holy Father is perfect and for mankind to again have access to God and be with God and join him there had to be some way to be perfected And that is what purgatory is all about. But I don't, I want to get away from that a little bit here and talk about the idea that God the Father gave us His only Son as a sacrifice because mankind had no way to return or make reparation For his sin. And therefore. There had to be some. Offering. Which. In the early days of. Judaism. It was the sacrificial lamb. That Moses. Was told by God. To prepare in a special way. And to consume. In a very special way. As a representative. Of a sacrifice. And that was carried down for 2,000 years until the time of Christ. The Jewish people then got so far off, off track, you might say, of God's plan of salvation that it was necessary to have an intervention, you might say. And therefore, God himself came into this world in the form of Jesus Christ to be that sacrificial lamb, you might say, in order to make a reparation for the sins of all mankind. So John is telling us in the prologue that Jesus is not just a man, he is not just some uh, gift of God, but he is God himself. And that is carried out through this gospel. And we have received certain incidents of how this is taking place and what the ultimate goal is. And we start out with a very simple story of Jesus and his mother and his brothers and disciples going to a wedding. A very common thing. We have it all today. In fact, I'm going to a 50th wedding anniversary uh, party in a couple of weeks. And I was reminded last night that I didn't actually do an RSVP. And, uh, you know, so get with it, man. Uh, so it's uh, a common thing. And in the midst of that wedding, uh, they run out of wine. And so the mother of Jesus talks to her good Jewish son and says, you know, do something about it. And he said, my hour has not come yet. But, you know, he, being a good Jewish boy, he's going to follow through and help his dear mother, which he does. And it is a tremendous gift of wine, uh, that was created, you might say, from just plain water, and far, far more than could be used, which was a symbol of God's abundant love of mankind. Later on, we go to another story, totally unrelated in a way, but again, the purpose is to show God's abundant love by feeding several hundreds of people. It says thousands, well, I'm a little leery about that, but nevertheless, uh, whether it was 50 or 500 or 5,000, what difference does it make? The point is that all of them were fed out of a few loaves of bread and a few fish that were available. And again, after that was all over with, they found several baskets or collected several baskets of uh, fragments left over. Again the idea is to show God's abundant love and that is what this whole gospel is about. It is the whole idea of God giving himself in abundant love for his creation so that In time, at the end of our lives, and at the end of all time, we can be reunited with God in the same way that Adam and Eve were united with God prior to their sin. You get the picture? It is a complete circle, you might say, of events. And I believe that we have... uh, given you many examples of that and that's what this whole idea is about you all have the copy of this I'm hoping All right, and that is a depiction of what I'm really trying to, to show you that God himself came to this earth in the form of mankind, Jesus Christ who then taught us many things, trying to get mankind back on the right track of God's plan of salvation, which culminated with the death and resurrection of this divine God, who was representing mankind because he took the sins of all mankind on his own back you might say to the cross and then offered that as the divine sacrifice that no other human being could offer so that in a way is where we are and what we want to see now and what we will be seeing over the next few chapters is how this divine God now is preparing mankind for his eventual death and resurrection and his departure from this earth and leaving it in the hands of a few chosen people. So, let's get into chapter 12. The anointing at Bethany. I'm not going to read all of this word for word because I'm sure that you've all read it. Yes, I can count on that, I'm sure. Um, But what I want to do is just kind of talk about the importance of it and how it fits into the big picture. The anointing at Bethany is really where at a banquet that is perhaps celebrating, you might say, uh, the return of Lazarus uh, from the dead. And Jesus and his family and disciples are there, Mary and Martha and many others, of course. And Mary, Lazarus' sister, uh, takes a large quantity of very special uh, ointment, you might say, and bathes the feet of Jesus as an act of humility and homage and love. It is something that is representative of all mankind that we should be doing, not necessarily the actual feet of Jesus, but the whole idea of offering something very special And particularly during this time of Lent. That is uh, something that we should be doing. Is offering something very special of ourselves to God. In not only remembrance of what he did for us. But in uh, an act of appreciation and of love. Uh, Says the large crowd of Jews, found out that he was there, and came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Obviously, they want to see this guy that was raised from the dead to see if he still looked like he did before, or was there a change of any kind. And of course, as we said last week, uh, Lazarus was raised or restored back to his natural life. It was not a resurrection in the same way that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Okay. And obviously, they were amazed. And you know, the Pharisees soon got wind of it and become frightened of what they perceived as the consequences of this notoriety here. This idea. Of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who could raise people from the dead and could do so many other things, and people were beginning to follow him as if he were the Messiah. Well, if they had read their own writings of the Old Testament, they would have realized that he was the Messiah. And perhaps they did. But nevertheless, it got into the way or in way of their own agenda and frightened them that they might lose their uh, authority, their advantage over uh, the little people, you might say, and lose their jobs, which, of course, eventually they did anyways because Judaism was destroyed uh, the temple was destroyed the whole idea of the priestly class was destroyed uh, by the year 70 AD and it's interesting in a way because it was the Jewish people who manipulated the Romans into crucifying Christ and it was eventually the Romans that got back at the Jewish people because of the persecution that the Jewish people took against the new Christians in that time period following uh, the death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ. During that 40 years from, you know, roughly the year 30 AD to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, persecutions raged. And it was the Jewish people who started that by ostracizing or putting out uh, the Christians from the uh, temple and the synagogues and then things escalated from there on and in the year 66 AD the Romans began to push back at the Jewish people because first of all they were not allowed to uh, kill anyone that was against not only the Ten Commandments, but it was against Roman rule. Only the Romans had the right to to execute anybody. Uh, and that is sort of the rule that the Jewish people used to manipulate the Romans to crucify Christ. So the Romans then got back, you might say, at the Jewish people beginning in 66 AD and went, raged on for three and a half years, and so by December of 70 A.D., uh, the temple and all of Jerusalem was destroyed. The essence of that, particularly the destruction of the temple, was really God's way of allowing that to happen, to show his displeasure with the jewish people rejecting christ rejecting the apostles and christianity in general and therefore jesus or rather father rather the father withdrew the first uh, covenant and it was reestablished you might say by christ himself with his death on the cross and this sort of got, you might say, mankind reestablished on the right track back with God's plan of salvation. Any questions so far? Yes? That, yeah, that's right. That was an execution in the usual way, it was an execution according to their religious beliefs. Uh you're right. Moses forbid stone uh, forbid killing uh, through the because of the Ten Commandments, but stoning wasn't exactly, you know, killing. If they happened to die, that was beside the point. Okay. All right. Any other interesting questions? All right, let us go on. The entry into Jerusalem in the Synoptic Gospels, this is something that happens a week before uh, the execution of Christ, where uh, Jesus comes in sitting on a donkey or an ass. Um, the whole idea of sitting on an ass actually was prophesied by Zechariah uh, back in the Old Testament, Zachariah chapter 9, because it uh, depicted royalty or the, the highest rank individual coming in peacefully rather than coming in on a camel or a horse in shining armor and all of that stuff. He comes in riding on a donkey, which means that he is coming in in peace and that's the whole objective here uh, of showing Christ uh, coming into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey but the idea of this and the fact that we have a couple uh, Greek people coming to the apostles and wanting to see Jesus indicates, as it says later, that the whole world was beginning to come to him, which was actually making the situation worse as far as the Pharisees were concerned. Uh, Then Jesus goes on to say, I am troubled now, and yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it was with this purpose that I came to this hour. Now, the word hour is used frequently in this gospel. All the way back in the story of the marriage feast at Cana, when uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him and says they're running out of, or they've run out of wine, he says, My hour has not come. Don't think of this as, you know, 60 minutes, tick, 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 you know. It is the time for his displaying the great sacrifice of his death and resurrection. It is now that particular time has come. Uh, Back at the marriage feast of Cana, that could have been, we don't know for sure, but that could have been uh, two, three, or four years before the crucifixion of Christ. And understandably, uh, he was just getting into preaching and so forth. But the end purpose of all of that had not yet taken place. But now we are approaching. It says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd there heard it and said it was thunder. But others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come for my sake, but for yours. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, meaning Satan, and when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning on the cross, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this Indicating the kind of death he would die. So that the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law. That the Messiah remains forever. Then how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Remember the words or the phrase the son of man comes from. The book of Daniel where the three companions of Daniel are bound and thrown into the fiery furnace. You all remember that story, I'm sure. And when the king looks in to make sure that they are being consumed as he wanted, he sees that they are not. And he says, not only do I see the three of them not being uh, hurt or harmed in any way by because of the fire, but I see a fourth in there that looks like the Son of Man. And, of course, that was an indication of somebody greater than the angels, greater than any man, and who could be that except Christ himself. Jesus said to them, The light will be among you only a little while, Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overcome you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where he's going. And while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of the light. In this case, the light really is the whole teachings of Christ using sort of common sense, you might say, going back to all of the writings of the Old Testament, which actually point to Christ himself and what he is doing. And the whole idea of walking in the light is take advantage of the opportunity to become a true Christian, to become a true follower of Christ, While you can, because the Jewish people have ignored the writings and went off by themselves. So he's saying to everyone, including the Jewish people, walk in the light. Walk while you still have an opportunity, because after you die, there is no more opportunity. After he had said this, Jesus left and hid from them. Now, I don't like this word, hid. We've run across that before again uh, in the past. Uh, hidden, in this case, would mean that he probably just vanished or disappeared in a way uh, and went off by himself to pray, which he normally did, or, or frequently did, I should say. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. In order that the word which Isaiah the prophet spoke might be fulfilled. and we go on. I want to go uh, to the next part of this. This recap. Recapitulation here. It says, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not only in me, but also in the one who sent me. Meaning the Father. And whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. He's beginning to talk now, and you'll get more of this as we go on, and particularly in chapter 17, uh, where this is brought out quite prominently. Whoever sees me, I'm sorry. Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. I came into the world as light so that everyone who believes in me might not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not observe them, I do not condemn him for I did not come to condemn the world but to save the world. And yet whoever rejects me and does not accept my words Has something to judge him. And that is the word that I spoke. And if you go back to page 32 from just a brief moment, under verse 5, or rather chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, it says, Amen, amen, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not come to condemnation. All right, so he's talking about it there in a positive way. Whoever believes and hears in my words will not come to condemnation. Now, on page 66... It's the negative side. If anyone hears my words. And does not observe them. I do not condemn him. For I did not. Condemn the world. Or come to condemn the world. But to save the world. Whoever rejects me. And does not accept my words. Has something to judge him. The word that I spoke. It will condemn him on the last day because I did not speak on my own but the Father who sent me commanded me to say and speak and I know that his commandment is eternal life so if any of you really want to know what eternal life is what the definition of eternal life is take those two passages and put them together the one in chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, and this whole section here, beginning particularly with verse 47. That's what eternal life is. Now, to describe it, we have no way to describe what eternal life is all about. Um, but we know in a way that we will then have access to God in the same way that Adam and Eve did back in the garden before they sin. All right. Well, let's take the first one first. All right. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three companions of David, Daniel, rather, in the book of Daniel. I only use that to point out an incident where the idea of the Son of Man, the phrase Son of Man, came from. Okay? That's the only part. Those three people were just a way to describe that particular incident. That's where the Son of Man phrase comes from. Uh, Secondly, when we talk about we have to be devoted to Christ, it means totally, without exception. Now, obviously, we being human beings will have doubts There's nothing wrong with having doubts. But if you stew over them and over them and over them without doing anything about it, that becomes wrong. Because God will use doubts to get us to move ahead, to get them resolved. The devil will also use doubts to get us to change our mind. So you just can't leave doubts there. You've got to do something about it. And yet I've heard people talk about stewing over certain questions in their minds for years and never doing anything about it. To me, that's a real (coughs) stumbling block in moving forward. Excuse me. Doubts are part of human nature. Nothing wrong with that. But don't leave them there. There is so much material available. There are so many people available to help you through those doubts, to resolve them, and come to the right conclusion. So don't just leave them there. All right? They become an obstacle to... Your uh, faith. Does that help you? It helps me very much. Thank you. Let's go on to chapter 13. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Dick. Jesus has recorded in his a little bit of gospel, a little bit of the Old
1: Testament. And then Jesus cried out
0: you cannot put them together that's a a good point what Dick is saying in, in this particular gospel that happens quite often something will happen and then right afterwards something else will happen and there is a disconnect but that's true you have to kind of accept that because in John's gospel, it is not something that runs in chronological order. Yeah. Okay. In some ways, it keeps you guessing. And, and I think more interested in a way. Because it's not a continuous story as the other gospels are. This keeps you really guessing as to what comes next. At least I look at it that way. All right. With chapter 13, we begin the Last Supper scenes. All right. There are two or three important things here. And then when we get into uh, what is called the Last Supper discourses, which, of course, chapter 14 is. Um, and then it continues through chapter 17. Uh, these are long teachings, very important. Um, and they probably did not all happen at the Last Supper. Uh, the Last Supper, in accordance with the Gospel of John, is entirely different than the Last Supper scenes in the other three Gospels. We do not have uh, the consecration of the bread and wine. We do not have the establishment of the priesthood in this. That presumably took place back in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. What we have is something entirely different. And when we get into particularly next week's lessons uh, chapters 15, 16, and 17 you will see how different they are but hopefully how meaningful but you have to kind of put all the gospels together and you'll see that as we approach Holy Week uh, in a few weeks. Okay, The washing of the disciples feet. We all know the story. We've seen it happen or reenacted you might say uh, on Holy Thursday uh, for the last many many years ever since Vatican II or shortly after Vatican II they began to change the uh, Holy Thursday uh, ceremony and that includes the washing of the feet uh, it is an act of humility In other words, here is God himself in the form of Jesus taking the role of a slave servant because it was only the lowest of the servants of any household that would wash the feet of the guests. Now, Jesus is taking that role not because it was necessary to wash the Uh, apostles feet but he wanted to do it as a show of humility how far God would go to show love to his creation I've been often asked over the years couldn't God have died in some other way to do and accomplish the same thing why did he have to die such a, a gory death and when we see crucifixes, well, like the one we have in the, in the church here, you know, it's so clean and nice and it has a beautiful, uh, you know, garment on, whatever you call it. Uh, you think that's the way it really looked after beating and scourging and uh, being up all night and dragging him through, uh, the city with the cross on his back? Do you think he actually looked like that? No. But mankind doesn't want to see their God looking like he really did. All bloody and marked up and, you know, hair disheveled and beard all full of blood and sweat and tears and so forth and so on. They don't want to look at their God that way. And so that's why our cross and crucifixes with the image on it are always so neat and clean. But that's not the way it was. And in this gospel, John wants us to look at reality. What really happened and why? And it gets pretty low, you might say, in, in many ways here. But let's go on, and that's important to kind of establish the scene for what we will be reading for the next several chapters. Okay. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. The devil had already induced Judas son of Simon the Iscariot to hand him over. So during supper, fully aware that the father had put everything into his power that's very important. He was aware of this right from the beginning. With all of the power that he had he could have vanished as he did a couple times before. Uh, he could have You know, raised or created an army and all of that. But that's not what he was here for. It was that he had come from God and was now taking steps to return to God. He rose from supper and took off his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel around his waist. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Master, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Unless I wash your feet, you will have no inheritance with me. Well, then, of course, Simon Peter changes his mind real quick and says, Master then, not only my feet, but my hands and head as well. You know, he goes from one extreme to the other. But that's, that's Peter. I like Peter. You know? <laughs> Jesus said to him, Whoever has bathed has no need except to have his feet washed. Remember, They didn't wear shoes in those days because most of them couldn't afford them. So it was common to go barefoot virtually all the time. And when you would come into somebody's house, it was the custom that a servant would wash your feet and sometimes your hands as well, depending on you know cleanliness and where you came from and so forth and so on. For he knew oh, who would be true. Oh, let's see, I'll back up a little bit. Whoever has bathed has no need to accept uh, no need has bathed has no need except to have his feet washed, for he is clean all over. And so you are clean, but not all, for he knew who would betray him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. That he meant free of misdeeds. So when he had washed their feet, put on his garment uh, and reclined at table again, he said to them, do you realize what I have done for you? And you call me teacher and master, and rightly so, for indeed I am if I, therefore, the master and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. This is uh, the wording and the uh, origin, you might say, of the great song that we sing in church, the song of Hosea, you know, come back to me with all your heart, etc. Uh, and this is the whole idea behind that. Okay. says, I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you should also do. And he's talking not only to the disciples, but all of us, all of us, that we have to serve our mankind. And by doing so, we serve God himself. Amen, amen, I say to you, no slave is greater than his master nor any messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand this, blessed are you if you do it. I am not speaking of all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The one who ate my food has raised his heel against me. And the idea of heel comes all the way from the book of Genesis where God, when he is talking to the serpent, says that eventually there will be the offspring of the woman who will crush his head, that is, crush the head of the serpent. From now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am Let's go on to the next part here. When he had said this, Jesus was deeply troubled and testified. Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another at a loss as to whom he meant. And one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon nodded to him to find out whom he meant and said, and therefore, John said to him, "Master, who is it?" Jesus answered, "It is the one whom I hand the morsel after I have dipped it." And so he dipped the morsel and took it, handed it to Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot. After he took the morsel, Satan entered him. So Jesus said, to him, "There's a there's an interesting." Uh, Wording you might say. Just uh, just a moment. It says. So after he. Dipped. He. Jesus. Dipped the morsel. And took it. And handed it to Judas. Son of Simon Iscariot. And after he. Took the morsel. Judas. You know. It's the personal pronouns. That often confuse people. You have to almost put arrows in there as to who is is who. Okay. After Jesus after Judas <laughs> took the morsel, Satan entered him, Judas. Okay. So Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now none of those reclining at table realized why he said this to him. So, some thought that since Judas kept the money bag, Jesus had told him, buy what you need, etc., etc. Lorraine? He's talking about the last Yes. Yeah. Now, he's not dipping it into the wine. He's dipping it into the food. All right. Uh, that was a common practice that they would have these large You know, pots like stew or whatever. And you would not have forks and knives in those days. You would eat with bread and dipping it in to the food. And it was customary at times for the host or the, you know, the most important person to often dip food into the common dish and then hand it to somebody as a sign uh welcome or gesture of some kind. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Well um you said well that was it one who's who Jesus love. Isn't that that phrase used in other places to be John? Yes. but this is not John.
0: Yes. It is. It is? Yes.
1: So it wasn't Peter?
0: No. The one who Jesus loved is in reference to John.
1: But, but said he was at the table. Do I misread it? One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved was the time when Jesus died. Yes. John was, so it's John.
0: Peter asked John to ask Jesus who it was. Yeah. You see, in and this is a common question. in writings of this kind, particularly in Jewish writings, not so much in Greek or Roman, but in Jewish writings, a person would never uh, say, "I asked him to do this." He never refers to himself in this way. Uh, so or and of course, if John is writing this, he would not use his name. Peter, Peter asked me to do this, so he's referring to himself, and more importantly, I believe it is the group of people that wrote this book yeah. Yeah. Sure. in reference to it, because John would not have wanted his name made public like that. This implies this was
1: sort of a whisper. So
0: yes. Sort of yeah. It. Yeah. You see in those days, they did not sit at chairs like you are here. They reclined on benches, or divans, I guess it would be, and therefore you would have these people sort of lined up with their heads and their arms being able to reach the common dish. And so it would generally be not as da Vinci depicts it in his Last Supper, but more of a, a group of people surrounding the common dish yeah probably probably yes when judas had left jesus said now is the son of man glorified there's that phrase again the son of man Because Jesus never refers to himself as the son of God. Again, out of humility. Now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And, of course, not written here, through him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And he will glorify him at once. Now, this whole idea of glorification is further brought out in chapter 17. So if you have questions about it, hold those until next week when we get to chapter 17, where the wording is even more complicated. uh, But there is a way of working through that. Okay, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer, and you will look for me, and as I told the Jews, there's that phrase again, Where I go, you cannot come. So now I say it to you. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. And this is how all of you know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. That might seem as a little overstressed. But it is this whole idea of love. And we're talking about agape love, not uh, affection or whatever. In a, down in the commentary here, just a little bit more than halfway down, uh, the commentator here, Father Scott Lewis, says, Love in John is not emotion sentiment or personal attraction, but very practical, dynamic, thought for and demanding. Jesus Himself is the revelation of God's love, as it said in chapters three verse sixteen, God so loved the world, etc in his ministry and in his death. Love will now be the distinguishing mark of the disciples of Jesus rather than dress or diet or rituals or observance of the law as Christians are always in need of recalling to mind. In other words, as Christians should be reminded on a regular basis, the mark of a true Christian is his love or his fellow man. Simon Peter said to him, Master, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, underline the word now, though you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Master, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, You will lay down your life for me, will you? Uh Amen, amen. I say to you, the cock will not crow before you deny me three times. (laughs) Chapter 14. Is the beginning of the Last Supper discourses, chapters 14 through 17. We'll finish up next week, the rest of them. But it's important that you really take this to heart because it is not in any other gospel. The teachings that are presented here in these three or four chapters. They're not in any other gospel. They're only in this one. And the center, of course, is always the idea of love of God through love of mankind. Some people have a difficult time, and I even heard one person say, well, I love God, but I don't love so-and-so. I don't love that person. I don't, you know. And I'm saying, then you don't really love God. Because if you love God, you would try to love all mankind. Now, being human, we know that that, you know, isn't always possible. But if you go back, and I think I gave all of you a little handout with three or four circles on it, showing what the components of love are... And they do not include sex, and it does not include affection. Affection is an emotion. Love is a decision. And therefore, love is crowned by the first component of respect for your fellow mankind. Respect for the dignity of mankind. In other words, though you may not particularly enjoy the company of somebody or really see eye to eye with somebody, you have to at least give them respect and treat them in a respectful way and withhold any spiteful comments. It's difficult for us to do. We have We, human life, human beings, uh, are very quick to criticize. But God is saying that as you are critical of others, God is going to be critical of you. In other words, measure for measure, Shakespeare's great play comes right out of The Gospels. Whatever measure you use to measure others will be used to measure you. See? Yes. Yes. Like is an emotion. Like is something that you know you do or you don't. Sometimes it'll change. But you do or you don't. You have very little control over your likes and dislikes. But loving a person requires a decision. All right? And that sometimes can be difficult in the heat of, you know, some spontaneous type of thing. Okay? Let's go on to chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself. So that where I am, you also may be. But where I am going, you know the way. And Thomas said to him, Master, we do not know the way. Where are you going? How can we know the way? And remember, of course, what did he say to Martha and again to Mary? I am the way. Jesus himself said, he is the way. So when we follow him, that is the way to the Father. That is the way to eternal life. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Underline that because that's a very, very, you might say, almost dangerous statement. For those people who say, well, I'm a good person, but I don't believe in Jesus, or I don't believe in the church, or in the institutional church, etc., etc. They are rejecting, without thinking about it, they are really rejecting God himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember the sheep gate? The sheep gate meaning the Entrance to the enclosure where the sheep are, etc. If you know me, then you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Master, show us the father. That he is. And that should be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, and you can almost feel the exasperation here, Have I been with you for so long a time, and you still not know me? However, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? This goes back to what I've said several times in the past. Wherever Christ is, whatever Christ says and does, the Father and the Holy Spirit are also there in unison. There is never a disagreement uh, or an arbitrary uh, misunderstanding or separation of thought or whatever. The Trinity always works in unison. Each of the three persons has their particular role in God's plan of salvation. But they are always working together. So, on the cross, Christ died. The Father was there and the Holy Spirit were there in spirit. And therefore, they did not die. Neither did the soul of Christ die. But the body died because that was why he came to earth in the first place, to represent mankind on the cross, offering himself to the Father in reparation for the sins of all mankind. This whole idea of the Father and the Son being interchangeable comes into play as we go on through the next three or four chapters, uh, including in chapter fourteen, the Holy Spirit. Up till now, the Father and the Holy and Christ were always together, working together, you might say. Uh, and Jesus' teachings always referenced the Father, because the Jewish people to whom he was doing these teachings recognized. God as Father. They didn't understand the Trinity because it had not ever been explained to them before. But Jesus now, little by little, is beginning to open the door on that subject. Howard? No. And still don't. And you have some Christian, so-called Christian faith, who do not believe in the Holy Spirit either. And the, part of the Jewish reason for that is because in the Shema, which is their most important uh, prayer, it says God is one. And they take that one as literally. As literal. Uh, and therefore do not accept the Trinity. Because, the you know, that uh, so goes against uh, everything that they've been taught for the last 4,000 years. So, it's unfortunate. And in some ways, that's Jesus' reason for not bringing up the idea of the Trinity uh, before this time. Because they weren't ready for it. And now he is giving it to the apostles, little by little, until Pentecost Sunday, the first Pentecost Sunday, when they all received, in a visible form, in the form of tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit. So they were then able to go out and start explaining the whole idea of the Trinity to all of their listeners. But if they had talked about it earlier, it wouldn't have made any sense to them. It had only been more confusing than they already were. excuse me, let's go on to uh, verse 15 on the next page because this is where it really gets into the Trinity it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always the spirit of truth Now, the Jewish people always recognized the idea of God and spirit, but not in the form of a separate person within God as the Holy Spirit. But now this is what Jesus is beginning to reveal to them. The spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it. But you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live and you will live. Of course, he's talking about the resurrection, but he's not really going into detail because they still don't understand. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. This is in mind and heart, not necessarily body. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. In other words, love is the indication of our true belief in God. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and reveal myself to the father. Judas, not the Iscariot. Remember there were two Judases in the uh, lineup of apostles. Said to him, Master, that what happened that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, yet the word you hear is not mine, but that of the Father who sent me. Jesus has said over and over in the past, that he has not really revealed anything of himself that the Father has not wanted mankind to know. And everything that the Father has told taught Jesus, Jesus has then revealed that or will reveal that over the next few hours or days that he will be alive and, of course, after the resurrection. I have told you this, that I am with you. I'm repeating a little bit. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. So do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me tell you I am going away, and I will come back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe that I no longer speak much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me, but the world must know that I love the Father and that I do just as the Father has commanded me. So, get up and let's go. Of course, where were they going? Hmm? Now, the the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. The Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. All right. You can see that this is getting more solemn, but I think, in some ways, much more interesting. Yes, Jack. said, "I will no longer speak much with you, but the ruler of the
1: world is coming. He has no power over me. Who is
0: the ruler of the world? The devil. Yes, the ruler of this world." is referred to several times in the old testament as the evil one or the devil. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? No questions? My goodness. Renato? No, I don't have a
1: question, but there's something that you said that troubles me and I just not I troubled you. Um <laughs> When the Lord tells us to love everyone, I find that extremely difficult, like I'm sure a lot of other people here do, too. All
0: right. Let let me hold there. Uh, The only thing I can say is, Renato, you are a human being. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And that is whatever, what all you said there, is a reflection of what all mankind probably believes and thinks. So there's nothing wrong with that. What we are talking about here when we have to respect somebody is if you had a face-to-face confrontation with any one of those people, but you had the upper hand in some way, you would still have to respect them as a human being. Not what they've done, well, not what they stand for, but as a human being, as one of God's creation. And that is what I mean by respect. All right? Yes. Sure. All right. If, for those of you who may not have heard, June just said that her mother taught her that there's always something in an individual that you can love. In other words if you have a person here that you absolutely despise, try to find one thing, at least one thing, that will help you to recognize that that person is also a child of God. And therefore, we have to respect that person as our love for God. You see, there is a Dual relationship there. When you are doing something that you don't want to do, but you do it out of love for God, then it is, you know, sort of a, a double, double whammy. All right. In a way, it, it will help you. Cora. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Judging is just judging other people is just the opposite of what we are asked to do. It's just the opposite of love thy neighbor. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. As we go forward now, be careful. Some of the wording, I understand, is a little bit cumbersome. But don't give up. In the next few chapters, it will be a little difficult to figure out, but we'll do our best when we get in here and talk about it. Okay? Alright, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we continue on our journey of Lent, and we continue on our efforts to better understand you through the Gospel of John, Help us to open our minds and our hearts and set aside those likes and dislikes that you would not approve. Give us the strength and the grace then to be loving people as you would want us to. To open our heart to all of those who are need and who are hurting. Help us then to understand where we can improve ourselves and our love for you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.